When was the last time you had the opportunity to watch and enjoy a sunrise? I mean, from the time the sky is dark to the time the sun is up. It's an amazing transformation, isn't it? When the sky is dark, you can't see very far and it's usually pretty cold. But at some point in the night, the night sky becomes a little less dark. And you know what is coming when the sky becomes a little less dark. You know that the sun will rise soon. The sun is coming, bringing light and warmth. I think that, uh, the, that period of time when the, the sky is a little less dark, but before the sun has come up, provides an illustration of the time period of Zechariah and Elizabeth at the time of the birth of their son, John the Baptist. And I want you to remember that imagery as we consider our sermon passage this morning, which is Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to Luke chapter 1 as we're going to go through verses 57 through 80. We are continuing our sermon series going through Luke's gospel, which we began several weeks ago. In the first few verses of his gospel, Luke describes what he set out to do. Luke wrote a thoroughly researched, orderly account for Theophilus and presumably a larger audience so that everyone who reads his gospel account would have certainty regarding the truth of the gospel message. And he summarized the content of his gospel as the things that have been accomplished or fulfilled among us. And that theme, which he establishes right at the beginning of his gospel, we see run throughout the entirety of his gospel. We see examples of things that were accomplished or fulfilled in Luke's lifetime that had been promised or prophesied about hundreds of years prior. Luke is demonstrating that at that point in time, the era of fulfillment had arrived in the coming of Jesus Christ. And so we see this theme of the things that have been fulfilled, the things that have been accomplished throughout Luke's gospel, and we see it certainly here in our sermon passage this morning. In our passage today, we are going to read about the birth and naming of John, as well as the prophecy of Zechariah. And what we'll see is that the sun began to rise with the birth of John the Baptist, and God's people rejoiced, praising him for his faithfulness and tender mercy. I'm going to read Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80, and I encourage you to follow along. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. 
And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins." because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel." Well, there are a few things I want to call our attention to in our passage. I want us to see the faith of Zechariah and the faithfulness of God and the tender mercy of God. So first, let's look at the faith of Zechariah. Earlier in chapter one, we read about Zechariah and his time ministering in the temple. He had the opportunity to go into the temple as a priest when his division was called upon to offer incense, which was probably a once in a lifetime opportunity for him. And before he did that, he was described as a righteous man being blameless before God. And when he went into the temple to offer incense, something completely and utterly shocking and terrifying happened. He was there to offer incense and suddenly the angel Gabriel appeared before him and his presence was terrifying. And therefore, Zechariah was terrified. And, Zechariah, or, and Gabriel said to him, do not be afraid. I've come to bring you good news. And Gabriel told him that his wife Elizabeth was going to bear a son. Yet, Zechariah responded to this good news with unbelief. Despite the fact that this angel suddenly appeared out of nowhere, whose appearance was terrifying, knew Zechariah's name, knew his wife's name, knew what he had been praying for, was able to reference scripture. When he told Zechariah this good news, Zechariah was like, yeah, but how do I really know? So he responded with unbelief. And because he responded with unbelief, he was disciplined. Gabriel told him, you are not going to be able to speak for this period of time. And fast forward to verse 57, we see that Elizabeth gave birth to their son just as Gabriel said. And boy, it was a memorable event. 
Many neighbors and relatives rejoiced with the birth of John and they were prepared to call him Zechariah. But to everyone's surprise, Elizabeth insisted he shall be called John. And they were like, wait a minute. Why are you calling him John? You don't have any relatives with this name. She was breaking from custom and from tradition, giving him a name that they did not expect at all. And they're like, maybe we should uh, try to check with Zechariah to see what he thinks about this. And of course, Zechariah was given the board and maybe it was a wood board with, with wax and he was able to write in there, his name is John. Zechariah described it as a settled fact. This is not what he shall be named. This is what he already is named. His name is John. There were no ifs, ands, and buts about it. And as soon as he wrote his name on the tablet, his mouth was opened, his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And as I said in verse six of chapter one, we've already seen that both Zechariah and Elizabeth were described as righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Think about this. Zechariah was an older man, a righteous man, and he served in the temple as a priest. He likely knew the scriptures very well. He had a reputation amongst those who knew him as a man who was above reproach. If you were to probably ask anyone who knew, knew Zechariah, they would say, yes, he's a good man. He's a righteous man. He seeks to walk with the Lord and obey his commands. Yet, when Gabriel delivered the good news, Zechariah responded with unbelief to the degree the Lord saw fit to discipline him. He disciplined him in a way that would be very inconvenient and somewhat embarrassing. It's hard to get things done when you can't talk. It's not necessarily good for the marriage if you can't talk. It would make life hard, and people would be able to see and observe that he was not able to talk. Hey, why can't Zechariah talk? How come he can't talk anymore? I mean, this was not an easy thing for him to endure. It would be inconvenient and embarrassing. Yet as soon as the Lord restored his speech, he blessed God. He did not become bitter or resentful. His attitude was not, woe is me, or why did you do this to me, God? The first words out of his mouth were not, finally, I'm glad this is over. That was hard. He said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He praised God. In his season of silence, the Lord strengthened his faith. The Lord corrected him and taught him, and he came out on the other side, eager to praise God and ready to be used by God. Perhaps Zechariah had Proverbs chapter three, verses 11 through 12 memorized. These verses say, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Yes, the Lord disciplines Zechariah. And to some, his discipline might seem harsh. But Zechariah didn't seem to view it that way. 
The Lord loved Zechariah. The Lord delighted in Zechariah. And the Lord saw fit to use Zechariah. He used him to utter a wonderful, beautiful, profound prophecy that would be recorded and passed on in God's word for generations. The author of Hebrews quoted that passage from Proverbs and added some of his own comments. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 11, he wrote, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God disciplines those whom he loves for their good, to give them something greater and better, namely to share his holiness. Brothers and sisters, this is a good thing. This is better than anything else we chase after and pursue. God is at work to do something and to give us something that is greater and better than what we know, than what we pursue, than what we believe will make us happy. He disciplines us because he loves us and he delights in us. Yes, it is painful at times. It doesn't feel good in the moment. But we know and trust God's love to use those painful moments of discipline to produce something good and better in us. And I think Zechariah understood this. I think Zechariah provides a commendable example here for someone who responded well to the Lord's discipline. In spite of the fact that he was an older man who had been walking with the Lord, seeking to obey his commands, serving him as a priest, the Lord saw fit to discipline him. Regardless of how long we have been walking with the Lord or how well we know the scriptures, we too are sinners in need of discipline. And because the Lord loves us, he disciplines us. The Lord's discipline is painful, but good. He disciplines those he loves, and his purpose is to conform us to Jesus, producing righteousness in us and strengthening our faith. Do you embrace the Lord's discipline in your life? Do you believe you need it? Do you believe he loves you enough to give you what you need even when it doesn't feel good? The Lord's discipline in your life is probably not going to be as obvious as Zechariah's. 
And I also want to be clear that everything, that not everything that happens to you bad in your life is necessarily the Lord's discipline. Sometimes we endure hardships and pains and trials, and that's not necessarily the Lord's discipline, but I do think the Lord disciplines us and we experience that in painful ways. Sometimes we experience the consequences of our, of our sin or, or our actions. Sometimes we go, go through hardships and trials as a matter of the Lord's discipline. We shouldn't necessarily quickly jump to assuming that everything bad we experience is the Lord's discipline, but we should humbly pray and seek the Lord to discern if something we are going through is a matter of his discipline. Believing that he loves us enough to do so. Lord, is this a matter of your discipline? How might I respond How, Lord, can I respond to this in a way that glorifies you? How might you be at work in me to produce righteousness, to strengthen my faith, that I might share in your holiness? Zechariah embraced the Lord's loving discipline, and his faith was stronger because of it. So we see the faith of Zechariah. Next, we see the faithfulness of God. As soon as he wrote on that tablet, Zechariah's tongue was loosed, his mouth was opened, and he began to bless God. Everyone knew that he had been unable to speak during the entire pregnancy. This was obvious to people, it was clear to people, and then suddenly he was able to speak, and he was blessing God, and he was prophesying, and this got people's attention. Whoa, what is happening here? And we read that fear spread throughout the land. And this is a good, healthy fear is in the sense of like God is working in our midst in an unusual way. What does this mean? People began to ask these questions. What is the meaning of this? What then shall this child be? Then Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied, I think his prophecy can be viewed in two parts. In verses 68 through 75, Zechariah blesses and praises God for fulfilling his covenant promise in bringing a Savior to Israel, which, of course, is fulfilled in Jesus. In verses 76 through 79, Zechariah praises God for the role of his son, John the Baptist, who will serve as a prophet to prepare the way of the Lord. The prophecy begins by describing the Messiah God was about to send, saying the Lord has visited and redeemed his people. Did you notice that in verse 68? He did not say the Lord is about to visit and redeem. He said the Lord has visited and redeemed. He spoke of it as if it had happened. It's as good as done. He was speaking about Christ coming before Christ had even been born. Yet in his words, he said, it's a done deal. The Lord has visited and redeemed his people. And the prophecy also makes a point of describing the coming of Jesus and John in terms of the fulfillment of prophecies and promises made long ago. The Messiah is a horn of salvation from the house of David who will save God's people from their enemies and whom the prophets spoke about long ago. And he will come in fulfillment of the oath the Lord swore to Abraham. Consider the hundreds and even thousands of years that passed before the Lord brought to fulfillment what he promised and foretold. It would have been easy for God's people to believe that the Lord had forgotten 
or given up on his promises. The Lord wasn't gonna actually follow through in what he said. I mean hundreds of years, even thousands of years in some of these things. Where is God? How come we're not seeing the fulfillment of what he said he will do? It would have been easy for them to doubt. But the Lord had not forgotten his word and he had not gone back on his word. He had not forgotten the oath he made to Abraham when he swore to bless him and multiply his offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore who would possess the gate of his enemies and through whom the nations of the earth would be blessed. He had not forgotten his promise to David that he would establish the throne of one of his descendants forever. He had not forgotten the prophecies that the Messiah would come as a suffering servant who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The covenant he made with Abraham, the promise he made to David, and the prophecies of the Messiah were coming to fulfillment with the coming of Jesus. And John would have the honor and privilege of preparing the way for him as the forerunner whom the Lord spoke of through his prophet Malachi. With the birth of his son, the sun was beginning to rise. Zechariah was blessing God for his faithfulness, erupting in praise the one true God who had made great and wonderful promises. And now was the era of fulfillment. Now, Zechariah was saying, God is fulfilling these promises and prophecies in our midst. Brothers and sisters, the Lord wants us to see and be convinced of his faithfulness. When we experience darkness and doubt, pain and sorrow, disappointment and hardship, he wants us to look to him and remember that he is faithful. When we experience joy and happiness, success and favor, health and relief, he wants us to look to him and remember that he is faithful. Zechariah described the Lord's faithfulness in numerous ways. And this is a means of strengthening your faith to remember, to reflect on, to rejoice in the faithfulness of God. Brothers and sisters, we need to be strengthened in our faith and we do so by remembering, reflecting on, and rejoicing in God's faithfulness. He wants us to see and be convinced of his faithfulness. He is faithful. But he's not only faithful, he is also merciful. In our passage, we also see the tender mercy of God. God's faithfulness and tender mercy go hand in hand. The Lord's mercy is mentioned three times in our passage. In verse 58, Elizabeth's neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy. If you had told Elizabeth that your name will be known by billions of people 
over the centuries because of your role in God's redemptive plan, she would not have believed you. She was a nobody. She was an older woman living in the hills of Judea whom people pitied because she was not able to have children. She described her own barrenness as her reproach. She was pained. She felt insignificant. She was unable to contribute to her family and community in the way she desired, in the way that was valued. Yet what do we see? She may have thought she would soon be gone and quickly forgotten. Yet the Lord saw her, the Lord cared for her, and the Lord showed her mercy. She was the one the Lord chose to give birth to a son. And not just any son, but John the Baptist, the forerunner who would prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord's mercy to Elizabeth reminds us that the Lord sees individual people, including and especially those who feel insignificant and seem unimportant in the eyes of the world. Luke's gospel is filled with examples like this. Friend, if you feel insignificant or that things are not going the way you hoped, or that you're not contributing in a meaningful way, I hope you will see the Lord's mercy toward Elizabeth and know his mercy for yourself. Lord sees you. The Lord cares for you. The Lord's merciful to you. In his prophecy, Zechariah referenced the mercy promised to our fathers. Of course, this was in the context of the Lord's faithfulness to the covenant. God graciously entered into a covenant with Abraham and bound himself to deliver on the promise he made. We see this in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15 provides an event that strikes us as very unusual perhaps very strange. It was a covenant ceremony between the Lord and Abraham. We might call it the cutting of a covenant. The Lord commanded Abraham, go get these sacrificial animals and cut them in half and lay them apart from each other. And what they were meant to do in this covenant ceremony, this cutting of the covenant, is normally both parties would walk between these animals that had been cut in half. And it would demonstrate that they were both bound to honor this covenant. And it was as if they were saying, may it be done to me as it is these animals if I break this covenant. But what we see in Genesis chapter 15 is that only one party went between the animals. It was the Lord. The Lord passed between the animals, appearing as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. In other words, the Lord was saying, this covenant depends on me. 
Ray Vanderland describes the significance of this so well. He writes, what an awesome God we have. What incredible love he has for his creatures. I love you so much, Abraham, God was saying. And I promise that this covenant will come true for you and your children. I will never break my covenant with you. I'm willing to put my own life on the line to make you understand. He goes on, because we look at God's dealings with Abraham as some remote piece of history in a far off land, we often fail to realize that we too are part of the long line of people with whom God made a covenant on that rocky plain near Hebron. And like those who came before us, we have broken that covenant. When he walked in the dust of the desert and through the blood of the animals Abraham had slaughtered, God was making a promise to all the descendants of Abraham, to everyone in the household of faith. When God splashed through the blood, he did it for us. We're not simply individuals in relationship to God. We're part of a long line of people marching back through history. We're part of a community of people with whom God established relationship in the dust and the sand of the Negev. But there's more. When God made covenant with his people, he did something no human being would, even, would have even considered doing. In the usual blood covenant, each party was responsible for keeping only his side of the promise. When God made covenant with Abraham, however, he promised to keep both sides of the agreement. If this covenant is broken, Abraham, for whatever reason, for my unfaithfulness or yours, I will pay the price, said God. If you or your descendants for whom you are making this covenant fail to keep it, I will pay the price in blood. And at that moment, Almighty God pronounced the death sentence on his son, Jesus. Oh, the tender mercy of God to not only enter into a covenant with his people, but to promise to fulfill and uphold the covenant in spite of our unfaithfulness. This is why Zechariah spoke of God's mercy in the context of the covenant he made. We see God's tender mercy in making the covenant and doing what was necessary to uphold the covenant. The final reference to the Lord's mercy in our passage is found in verse 78. And I want to read verses 76 through 79 one more time. In reference to his son, John, Zechariah said, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. What a sweet reference to the tender mercy of our God. John would prepare the way, giving knowledge of salvation. Salvation was coming. What did that mean? Well, for one, it meant the forgiveness of sins, which is what we all need most. We are all guilty, and we all have guilty consciences. 
And there are various ways we try to suppress this or ignore this. We try to suppress or ignore our guilty consciences. We fill ourselves with distractions or we try to convince ourselves that we're actually pretty good people. We compare ourselves with others. I'm not as bad as them. We find all kinds of ways to deal with our guilty consciences. But the only thing that will suffice is if God will completely and utterly forgive us and cleanse us of all our sin. That is the only solution to our guilt and to our guilty consciences. And the salvation that God brings in Jesus Christ accomplishes that. It accomplishes what we need most. We need the forgiveness of our sins. We all need the knowledge of salvation that brings the forgiveness of sins. And friends, this gets to the heart of the gospel. The good news that God saves sinners in Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. Friend, if you're not a Christian, our hope, our prayer for you is that you will understand and believe this good news. You see, God is our creator. He is the creator of everyone and everything. He created everything good. And he made us in his image, man, male and female. He is the holy one without any stain of sin, perfect in every way. He is the righteous judge of all the earth to whom we must give an account because he is our creator. He created us to know him, to enjoy him, to obey him, to glorify him. Yet we have all rebelled against his purpose for us and his rule over us. Through sin, we've rejected God as our king. We are all guilty. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. And if God were to give us exactly what we deserve, it would be hell. An eternity separated from him in conscious torment. That might seem harsh to you, but that is what we deserve. But the good news is that God, who is rich in mercy, has provided a way for sinners like you and me to be forgiven of our sin, to be reconciled to him, to escape the judgment we deserve. And he did so at great cost to himself. He did so by sending Jesus Christ, the Son of God, into the world as the Savior of the world. And Jesus lived a life without sin, which we've all failed to do. And despite the fact that he was without sin, he went to die on the cross as though he were a guilty sinner to take the punishment for the sins of his people in their place. When Jesus died on the cross, he absorbed God's wrath on behalf of God's people. Jesus died and was buried, but on the third day, he rose from the grave, conquering death. And after Jesus rose bodily from the grave, he appeared to hundreds of people, hundreds of eyewitnesses, many of whom Luke uh, interviewed. He appeared to hundreds of people proving that he is alive. 
demonstrating that God had accepted his sacrifice as sufficient to take the punishment for the sins of his people. And after 40 days, Jesus ascended into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And he said he will come again to judge the living and the dead. There will be a day of final judgment. And right now, everyone who repents of their sin and believes in Christ will be saved. The good news, the gospel that we proclaim is that everyone who believes in Christ will be saved. Friend, if you have not repented and believed in Christ, do not wait another day. I pray that today will be the day of salvation for you. You too need the forgiveness of your sins. Christ brought the salvation that we all need, which brings the forgiveness of sins. And this is a wonderful demonstration of the tender mercy of our God. What did Zechariah compare the coming salvation to? The sunrise giving light to those sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. Zechariah prophesied that the night sky was getting lighter and the sunrise was coming. The Lord's faithfulness means that his people would receive the forgiveness of their sins. Brothers and sisters, the Lord's faithfulness means that we who are in Christ Jesus receive the tender mercy of God and that he forgives all our sins. In 1 John 1, 9, we read, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In 1 Corinthians 1, 7 through 9, Paul wrote, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. For those of you in Christ Jesus, God is faithful. He is the one who, will cleanse, who cleanses you of all your sin, who holds you guiltless, and who will sustain you to the end. This is his faithfulness. This is his tender mercy in your life. The sun began to rise with the birth of John the Baptist, and God's people rejoiced. Zechariah prophesied, praising God for his faithfulness and tender mercy. Well, what do we take from our passage this morning? How do we apply this to our own hearts and lives? What do we leave here with? Well, I hope that everyone will come away with at least two things. Comfort for the present and hope for the future. First, comfort for the present. We continue to live in a world full of darkness and disappointment. We continue to deal with sin in our own hearts as well as the sins of others. Yet God's faithfulness and tender mercy remind us that we are not forgotten and not forsaken. Jesus promised his followers, I am with you to the end of the age. We find comfort here and now because he is with us. Sometimes we have problems in this life and we have a specific way that we want God to fix those problems. 
I got this problem right now. I'm dealing with this. And God, I just want you to do this. Here's how I want you to resolve it. And here is when I want you to resolve it. But it does not always happen the way we hope or desire and pray. Yet in those moments, we remind ourselves of God's faithfulness and his tender mercy. He loves us. He cares for us. He is with us. And he will sustain us to the end. I appreciate the encouragement that James Smith gives to Christians when he writes, you are one in whom Christ delights and dwells. You live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom is not in trouble and neither are you. That's not to make light of any suffering or trials that we go through in this life. But it is to help us remember the big picture. For those in Christ Jesus, ultimately we belong to him. He holds us in his hands. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. We belong to his kingdom. And he is the one who will sustain us to the end. Finally, hope for the future. In Christ Jesus, we are on the receiving end of God's faithfulness and tender mercy, yet his faithfulness and tender mercy do not guarantee that everything will work out in this life the way we hope it will. As followers of Jesus, our hope is ultimately in the consummation of Christ's kingdom, where we will dwell with him for all eternity. When Christ came, he came into the world as the light of the world. And we who have believed in Christ have the light of Christ but we still live in a world full of darkness. We are not waiting for the initial coming of Christ as Zechariah and Elizabeth were, but we are waiting for the second coming of Christ. Or as Paul said in the passage I just referenced, we are waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were waiting for his first coming. We are waiting for his second coming or his revealing. We look forward to that with eager anticipation. As Zechariah and Elizabeth looked forward to the sunrise, we look forward to the complete eradication of all darkness. God has made wonderful promises to those who are in Christ Jesus. He has given us a beautiful picture of our future with him. One of the places we see this is Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. We read, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We will enjoy perfect and unhindered fellowship with God in all his glory 
in splendor. We look forward to the day when we will worship our resurrected Savior with resurrected bodies in his glorious kingdom where there will be no more sin, no more sickness, no more war, no more famine, no more pain, no more tears. We look forward to this. Our light and momentary afflictions do not compare with the glory to be revealed to us. How often do you think of this? How often do you look forward to our future in Christ's kingdom? If you have a trip plan that you're looking forward to it, I'm guessing like me, you think about it a lot. You look forward to it. You envision how it's going to go. Well, brothers and sisters, we do well to think often about heaven, about our future with Christ in his kingdom, to meditate on this, to remind ourselves of this, to sing about this. We want to prepare ourselves for our future with him. And we know that we will get there because of his faithfulness and his tender mercy. Christ is a mighty savior. He is the one who will sustain us. He is the one who will bring us home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you for your word. Your word is good. We thank you for Christ who came into the world as the light of the world. We thank you and praise you, Lord, for your faithfulness and your tender mercy that you have shown us in Christ Jesus. We have received the light, and we look forward to the day when there will be the complete eradication of all darkness. You are good, and you are good to us. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith. We are sinners. We are weak. We are in need of your help, and we thank you that you are gracious and merciful towards sinners like us. Help us to reflect and meditate on your faithfulness. Help us to reflect and meditate on your tender mercy as we rejoice in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.